1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kalina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry, and Molecular Biology of Neurodegenerative Diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we will be talking to Joseph Riegel about the book World Brain by H.G. Wells. In 1937, H.G. Wells proposed a pre-digital, freely available world encyclopedia to represent a civilization-saving world brain. The world encyclopedia would provide a summary of verified reality in about 40 volumes. It would be widely available free of copyright and utilize the latest technology. Well's optimism about the power of information might strike readers today as naively utopian, but possibly also inspirational. Well, Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of recent pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work? and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience.
1: So I teach at a university, at Northeastern University, and the past couple of years have certainly been different, in some ways difficult, but not nearly as difficult as a lot of other people out there, perhaps. So one of the things I was thinking about, actually, a couple of years ago, was I wanted to do a project about why technologists get things wrong, why they tend to be overly optimistic. And then we fall into circumstances where we're quite disappointed, right? So take something like Facebook, you know, was this idea that it could connect people, but now it is rife with political division and misinformation. And I was thinking about a book project on this topic, and I was thinking I was going to call it uh, naive. And some of the papers I've written recently, I do talk about naivete in the tech circles and the way that they conceive of technology. Uh, But then with the emergence of COVID and the Trump impeachment hearings and whatnot, I became a little bit dispirited, well, significantly dispirited uh, about this project because while I think it would be really interesting to think further about how is it and what kinds of naivete lead us to make bad decisions when it comes to technology design, Uh, I didn't feel it was really up to the task of where we had arrived, where it wasn't just ooh some things we were a little bit naive about and we had some unintended consequences. But, you know, things are really kind of on fire now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I ended up abandoning that project because I felt so dispirited by it. But one of the things that that made me feel um, a little bit more decent about abandoning that work is that Noah Springer at MIT Press said they were thinking of putting out a new edition of H.G. Wells' World Brain. And it's a book that I'm familiar with because of my earlier work on Wikipedia. I studied the early history of Wikipedia and how it developed and how it manifested and why it managed to be successful despite a lot of people saying it never would be. And as part of the historical framing framing. I likened it to HG Wells's notion of a real brain a hundred years ago. And I argued that I thought Wikipedia really was a manifestation of Wells's vision from a century ago. Uh, But I wrote that book about Wikipedia, good faith collaboration, its history and its collaborative culture, you know, back in 2007, 2009. So when Springer approached me and MIT approached me in 2020, uh, my my thinking had changed significantly so going back and reading hg wells and in particular comparing him to george orwell was really interesting and kind of helpful to me in terms of framing what was happening in that period from wow look at this thing called wikipedia everyone is amazed by it maybe this will portend of how the rest of the world could, and the web could go to 2020, which is, oh my gosh, look what a dumpster fire this has become. Mm -hmm. So COVID and uh, politics did lead me to feel quite disenchanted, so much so that I abandoned the project. But this project of putting out H.G. Wells' new new edition of his centuries-old book was actually helpful to me.
0: So you already mentioned that you teach at university. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. I began a long time ago in computer science. And when I was in computer science, I was particularly interested in security and cryptography. Uh, back then during the Clinton administration in the 1990s, there was this proposal of the clipper chip that, uh, that the government would be able to take your private keys and hold them in escrow. And then if they needed to access a computer, they would go through the court system and have access to that. And that got me interested in policy. And so after my computer science degree, I went to MIT for a master's degree in technology policy. Then I worked at the World Wide Web Consortium, continuing to do policy on things like privacy, as well as manage uh, the consortium's uh, copyright issues, work on some patent issues. I was working for Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who founded the web. And then around 2000, I really enjoyed the consumer-facing Technology and policy sort of work. I was really intrigued by blogs and these new forms and genres of online communication and wikis. So i uh, I went back to graduate school. I went to NYU. I was at the uh, the program of media culture and communication, and there I ended up writing my dissertation about Wikipedia, about its history and about its culture, and that launched my current career of being a communication studies scholar who is interested in online community, culture, and also looking at it from a, from a historical point of view.
0: Very interesting. So you had uh, quite a interesting journey there from computer science to media and communications. So do you have anything to say to your younger listeners and perhaps early career scholars?
1: Uh, that is hard because one of the other things I'm really interested in is self-help as a genre mm-hmm. of communication. And that question, you know, people will often say things like follow your passion or follow your interests. Or conversely, you'll have ideas like, well, you love photography, but you don't want to become a photographer. You'll be a wedding photographer and you'll hate your job. So don't follow your passion. Don't follow your interest. And I, my most recent book is actually uh, before this, my sole authored book is about life hackers. So again, it's about geeky, technical kind of people trying to fashion a decent life, a good life in the 21st century, right? Whatever that good life might be. Um, So I'm often hesitant to give blanket self-help advice. Uh, I can only say what has worked for me and sometimes I can speak to what the research says that people should do. So, uh, but that might be a different question.
0: And then what about your environment? So did you have any mentors that really supported you along the way?
1: I did. I really enjoyed working for and working with some really bright people along the way. So when I did my undergrad work, uh, I took a lot of history classes. I was particularly interested in medieval history, but I took uh, a course with Professor Burke, who uh, taught computer technology history. Uh, I had a Professor Fichetti who studied film, and so even when I was an undergrad, my basically my two other minors were in history and uh, media. So I've long had that interest, and then all along the way, um, uh, Lawrence Lessig at the Harvard Law School, Jonathan Zittrain. I had I've had the opportunity to be a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society twice. Uh, my PhD dissertation committee head, Helen Nissenbaum, she was a philosopher. And so again, I had a very diverse sort of uh, dissertation committee when I was in graduate school. I had a business school professor, an anthropologist, and a philosopher. And I was studying communication and media studies. So I've and I've, I've always pulled from lots of different areas, but one of the potential downsides is that makes me maybe an expert of none, right? A jack of all trades, an expert of none in the academic context. So that's why I say I don't necessarily want to give advice and say that's what everyone else does. But I do tend to be fairly uh, promiscuous in my interests and that works for me.
0: So you've written an introduction to uh, World Brain by H.G. Wells. So can you tell us why was it important to you?
1: So at the beginning, you asked me how COVID might have affected me. And I, I think I spoke to why Wells was so important because he was such an optimist and he was inspired by some of the gee technologies at the time, like microfiche and index cards. And he wasn't the only one. There were others, Paul Otley, a Belgium, uh, what he called himself a documentalist. So 100 years ago, there were a bunch of folks uh, who were thinking that Being able to take facts from books and facts from research and put them in index cards and make them easily accessible and print them on microfiche and send them all over the world and make content, books, knowledge accessible to everyone. HG Wells was saying in in a, a few short decades there won't be an illiterate person in the world. But we have to move there quickly, because when uh, Wells wrote The World Brain, and of course, he's a famous science fiction author, but he was actually prolific across nonfiction and polemics as well. He was between uh, the 1920s and the 1940s, between the, the two great world wars. And he said... We might call these the frightened thirties, because the Treaty of Versailles after World War One hadn't been a proper settlement, and he was anticipating World War Two was on its way. Right? He and, for instance, George Orwell were watching what Hitler was doing in Germany, and Wells was desperate that people somehow move beyond their partisan instincts and create some sort of institution based on scientific factual knowledge, such that global disputes could be resolved. And he thought this idea of a world encyclopedia that he called a world brain would be a way to do that. And again, as I said at the start, I, I saw some similarities in that with respect to the early naivete, with respect to the web, and maybe even Wikipedia and where we are in this particular moment.
0: And besides just proposing an idea of uh, such a system of uh, knowledge preservation and distribution, he also uh, was thinking about the ways it can be uh, can be done practically. So, what kind of technologies did he envision?
1: Well, as I mentioned, he was really into the index card. He was really interested in encyclopedias because they've been around for a couple hundred years ago, but they've gone through a number of innovations over the years. Uh, in particular, there was the Encyclopédie France. And uh, he thought that maybe some sort of international institution could buy the Encyclopedia Francaise and start using that to build his world brain. He also had interesting takes on education. Uh, He he thought education was critically important, but that education was hidebound and stuck in old ways. Uh, And he wanted to somehow create this world brain that would take scholars and information from all these educational and research institutions and turn them into something useful that the world could use practically to solve all the conflict and the oncoming world war ii Um, but he didn't get very specific about it he said here's the idea and i hope other smart people will step forward and fund this and make it happen but for instance george orwell wrote a a critical essay of hg wells lamenting the fact that uh orwell had been going on about this for like 10 years um, and yes, all reasonable people could agree with this general idea, but the world was being run by unreasonable people like Hitler. Uh, and so what do you do in the face of that? So
0: we already mentioned uh, parallels uh, of the world brain to Wikipedia, but there are also a few contrasts, aren't there? For example, non-editability of uh, printed uh, encyclopedias, at least not very fast.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a different time, right? So you weren't going to be able to have just anyone, Joe Blow, contributing to the world brain. Uh, Wikipedia, anybody, including Joe Blow, like such as myself, Joseph Regal, can edit Wikipedia. And that was a huge shift. And interestingly, as a bit of Wikipedia history, when Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger were first conceiving Wikipedia... They didn't conceive Wikipedia as we know it today, or as it even soon came to be known. They had mm. worked on a project before that called Newpedia, N-U-P-E-D-I-A. And Larry Sanger uh, had been a PhD student in philosophy, studying epistemology. And Jimmy Wales had been a options trader in Chicago and now internet entrepreneur before the 1990s internet bubble burst. And the idea was, is they would create a global encyclopedia, but Under Larry Sanger's vision, their first instance of this newpedia, uh, it would actually be experts, much like George Orwell conceived technocrats would be writing this encyclopedia, because you wouldn't really want to necessarily trust the masses to that. But the interesting part of the Wikipedia history is that uh, newpedia. Was very slow. It was very difficult to get these experts together and to contribute and to go through this multi-stage process to guarantee quality. And Jimmy Wales had set up a wiki to play around with because there was this new thing out there that allowed anyone to edit a wiki, and they created that sort of as an experimental staging area for this new Pedia project. But the wiki uh, really caught on extraordinarily so. So while it had taking you know almost a year for Newpedia to write one article within moments, uh, people were writing dozens of articles on Wikipedia. So I often like to say Wikipedia was a happy happy accident. And there was also a little bit of a controversy in the past week, I don't know if you saw this, but Jimmy Wales was auctioning the first edit to Wikipedia as an NFT, right? Non-fungible cryptographic token, uh, financial token. And there was some controversy that I was a little bit involved in, in terms of, like, well, what was the first edit to Wikipedia? But Wikipedia very much was a happy accident.
0: So now thinking of H.G. Wells' world brain, how did uh, people uh, in his days accept his, or not accept his ideas? Or what was their reaction?
1: Well, H.G. Wells was very popular. He wrote these amazing science fiction stories, like Visible Man and uh, Ah, uh, War the Worlds and his his encyclopedic writing because he wrote all these nonfiction's about biology and world history that were all bestsellers by uh, any means of the any understanding of the word, um, and he was also a polemic, so he would go around and give speeches. And so uh, this particular book, The World Brain, is a collection of about five speeches that he gave, as well as a couple of kind of op-ed pieces following those speeches. And thousands of people would show up to hear him talk. So the concepts and these ideas were accessible to the masses, and I would say they were even fairly popular. But nothing came of it in terms of creating an actual institution Uh, Nothing came of it in terms of creating an actual encyclopedia that could be used in this way. And so I would say it inspired people, especially once we started moving towards electronic computers and transistor-based computers, and that then manifested in terms of the web and Newpedia and Wikipedia and at least half a dozen to a dozen other encyclopedic projects that most people aren't familiar with now. Uh, But nothing very practical ever came of this. And one of the interesting things, like in the introduction, I compare Wells to Orwell. Wells was of an older generation. So I think he was 70 when he published this particular book. And he would die within the next couple of years. And so he was still coming out of that Edwardian age where things had been extraordinarily static and hidebound and Orwell himself notes that when he was young as a child, he really was inspired by H.G. Wells and these visions of alternative worlds and kind of uh, thumbing your nose at the, at the schoolmasters and the clergy and saying, we can do things differently. Um, but George Orwell, you know, lived through World War I and World War II and had a much more cynical and dark vision of what a global Technocratic institution would look like and what do it would mean for ordinary people?
0: And when you compare those two sort of big schools of thought on this matter, which ones which one do you identify most with?
1: Well, back in 2010, I think I was more sympathetic to HG Wells. Uh, today I think I'm more sympathetic towards Orwell.
0: So Beyond Wikipedia, where else can we see these concepts being applied nowadays?
1: Not many places, and I think that's why I have a slightly more pessimistic view. Because at the turn of the new millennium, uh, when Wikipedia was emerging, uh, as was free and open source software, Linux, uh, the Apache web server, Mozilla Firefox, uh, Yochai Benkler, a colleague of mine at at Harvard, He was one of the big theorists of, what did all this mean? And this was really a new profound way of interacting. I remember uh, some of the first earliest studies about Wikipedia were, why the heck do people contribute to Wikipedia for free? So a number of us were around back then. Uh, Benkler was certainly more senior and prominent than me. And we were really trying to figure out and laud the fact that the web enabled people to come together to build things together, and this was a different take. Now, 10 years later, I'd say that not many people are familiar with firefox they're not probably using an open source browser though if they're using chrome or safari there's a bit of open source in the the center of it open source software is still very important uh, behind the scenes uh, but it doesn't have that same uh, libertarian uh, and liberatory ethos of individuals can can take technology and come together and build extraordinary things that change the world. Now, most people say, even my students, this is one of my experience now, you know, what it means to be tech savvy to them means that they maybe know how to use Google drive, Google docs, they post on Instagram, most of them are off Facebook now. Uh, but, and that's a very different world from the world that we were looking at 15 years ago. When this idea that everyone can contribute something useful and it wouldn't be encumbered by the algorithm uh, that's always watching us, right? And is serving us content that is maybe making us depressed because it makes it seem like everyone else has such a better life and is so much more beautiful than our own life Uh, and that other people appear so much beautiful because they're applying beauty filters and that advertisers are watching every single thing that we do as are these platforms and selling them to large companies and the governments are spying on us Uh, so i think there has definitely been a shift uh, in the past ten or fifteen years, and it's not for the better.
0: This is so interesting that you may mention open source and uh, you give this a uh, different perspective to what most of us perhaps think of open source that it's completely user user managed and everybody can contribute, but in some sense it's still it's not really, is it?
1: well if you were to look at the linux kernel which was a very famous early example of everyone contribute uh most of the contributors work at companies and that's not necessarily a bad thing uh but my point was going to be wikipedia instead of being this herald of a new way of being instead is really the last one left it's the last place for the most part, I mean, there are other examples out there. It's the last pace where ordinary people can actually collaborate with other people in that open source way. And it's interesting to me because I studied the history of Wikipedia. When Wikipedia first came on the scene, it was characterized as like junk food, right? It's it's garbage. It's like the bathroom, and you know the former president of the ALA, the American Library Association, was calling it like a Big Mac. That was dietary equivalent, intellectual equivalent of a Big Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and now, fifteen years later, uh, a lot of people and even headlines say Wikipedia is the grown up on the web, and in some ways, it's the last one because it's been overtaken by. Uh, surveillance capitalism and all these platforms associated with it. And so I think that's that's a bit where the disappointment and where my shift from like Wells to Orwell uh, uh, moved.
0: Yes, for sure. I can definitely see that. But I'm also thinking of GitHub, for example. That could uh, be thought of as original blockchain as well.
1: Perhaps, right? So uh, <laughs> yeah, so GitHub Interestingly, it was this uh, service that would take this thing that Linus Torvalds, the guy who invented Linux, managing all the patches that were coming in were very difficult. So he created a, a system called Git that allowed people to con- to collaborate in a very decentralized way and managed all these contributions from all these different sources. What GitHub did is said, well, why don't we take this really neat decentralized um approach and centralize it into a single website. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in doing that, they all allow you to do certain things. Like, so it's very me- easy to message other people, to link issues between different open source projects, but it made it very centralized. And Microsoft has actually now bought GitHub. And uh, I think it's for the best because, you know, 20 years ago, Microsoft was seen as the uh, antithesis of Linux, right? Uh, I think it was Steve Ballmer or um, Bill Gates characterized Linux and open source as like a cancer. Um, so things have, have become less uh, contentious since then, but I think we've also seen the corporatization of even open source. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. We want companies to be able to participate. But this idea of decentralized, uh, distributed, lots of small players involved has really fallen to the wayside and now it is a lot more about centralized services that are owned by these very large companies uh, and that are probably kind of tracking what people do from a privacy perspective
0: so this brings us nicely to the technological advances of the day so there's a lot of talk going around and discussion on who should have an access to new technologies and who should be developing things like AI, for example, or biotechnology. What is your take on that?
1: Again, the technological vision tends to to be utopic, like this is going to be the harbinger of a grand new world. Uh, You mentioned uh, blockchain in your last question. And it's interesting, when I was at MIT, I wrote, I was what, Uh, we called cypherpunks. So this was the first group of people who were thrilled with cryptography and thought it would be able to supplant existing financial institutions and even government authorities. And my master's thesis was um, about distributed trust. And it wasn't exactly the blockchain, but it was kind of something like a blockchain. Like we would have basically smart contracts by having signatures on statements. And then how did you know if a signature was good? Well, it would exist within a web within a web of signatures. So kind of like a blockchain. So I was an enthusiast back then. And uh, Satoshi's blockchain as part of Bitcoin is really a brilliant innovation. Uh, and the blockchain is extraordinary. Uh, but what has become of it? Uh, well, we have these NFTs, right? These non-fungible tokens. And my take on that is that people are selling all kinds of nonsense and any currency is really only as valuable as what other people are willing to give it, uh, give you for it. Um, so to the extent that people continue to believe that a, a hash in a blockchain is valuable, it will continue to be valuable, but perhaps it's also going to be like the tu- the tulip, uh, fiasco and, uh, the netherlands you know almost a century ago uh where again, what do we see happening? Do we see people, little people, ordinary people, decentralized communities uh, benefiting from this in a significant way? Or do we see speculators? Do we see misinformation? Do we see hype? Uh, I'm seeing more of the latter. So, I mean, you're really getting a full bore of my pessimism at the moment, and that's not my intention because there are other things that do excite me about the web. But the thing that so intrigued me about HG Wells is that it did seem to be his notion of a a world brain, a mirror for this tension between utopic thinking about what technology can deliver and the dystopic uh, reality that is often uh, arrives in its place.
0: I definitely don't see uh, your response as pessimistic or your uh, outlook as pessimistic on these matters because thinking about the NFTs, which are being sold, some nonsense being sold, it would be good if we didn't burn the rainforest in the process.
1: Right. The crypto cryptocurrencies typically take a lot of energy. Uh, and so there has been concern that these are, you know, contributing to the carbon dioxide footprint. I think that's an interesting point. The other point is I'm wondering to what, how much energy is actually entailed in creating a dollar bill or how much energy is entailed in creating the digits right at the, uh, Um, at the Fed, Uh, I suspect the cryptocurrencies are taking more. And some of the cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, not Bitcoin, uh, but Ethereum is planning on moving to a different protocol underlying what means value uh, in that cryptocurrency. It's It's called proof of stake instead of proof of work. So currently in most cryptocurrencies, the way that you authenticate a transaction has happened and, and seal that and record that for everyone's benefit is you have to do a certain amount of work. You have to, make, you have to run a lot of hashes. They're going to move to something else where you have to have a lot of storage space to do the same sort of thing. Maybe that will be better from the point of view of um, the environmental impact, but I'm not, I'm not positive because now you're going to have to mine a lot of rare earth materials to keep creating all those hard drives.
0: Yeah you're right and uh, something that you mentioned earlier the value is what we give it isn't it so the society should de- uh, should decide whether we give value to any of these uh, crypto tokens
1: yeah and again like I was in in the 90s I was a cypherpunk I was you know wrote a dissertation on a smart contract of, of a sort and I'm not opposed to cryptocurrencies but um You know, how are they being used now? I actually don't know. I think it'd be interesting. But to the extent that I've been able to glean what percentage of purchases happen for maybe illicit or immoral behavior, like, uh, you know, drugs or, or child porn or sex trafficking or whatever it might be. The, the dark web has really been the thing that benefited from cryptocurrencies more so than other things. And maybe that'll change. There have been some countries in South America who have said they're going to move to uh, cryptocurrencies. I think maybe it was, I forget which one it was, maybe it was Venezuela, but I'm not positive. Um, so I'm not opposed to the technology, but I am intrigued and a little bit disappointed again from how we conceived of this originally to how it actually played out.
0: Oh, yes, for sure and uh, i think there are a couple of uh, other podcasts that cover it very well Uh, for example behind the bastards they just did a few episodes on the cryptocurrencies and el salvador just recently and stated bitcoin as their uh, currency so we'll see how Ah, yes that's right el
1: salvador Mm -hmm.
0: so thinking about the knowledge dissemination and education so you mentioned that h2l was also interested in educational systems What do you think of uh, institutions such as Open University, for example, which allows this uh, knowledge dissemination to much wider audiences?
1: I'm I'm sympathetic. I'm actually even bullish on that. I like the idea of making as much information and knowledge available as possible. And one of the things H.G. Wells wrote about is he had this belief that once the facts are known, And he said, facts are very easily arrived at. Once the facts are known, all the enmities and partisanship you see in the world would just kind of dissolve away. And that's basically, he didn't say much more than that. He just had this earnest, uh, well-held belief that arriving at statements of fact was a fairly trivial undertaking, and then once you do that, you deprive the despots and the uh, con people uh, from abusing ordinary folks. And I think that was a mistake uh, because now if you think about it now, we have so much amazing, accessible information available to us. But the thing that we're really struggling with, and I've been trying to teach critical thinking as long as I've been a teacher for over 10 years now, is that that's not enough? Indeed, uh, there is a media theorist uh, named Dana Boyd, and I use a couple of her readings in my one class where we talk about this. And she said maybe we did too good of a job of teaching critical thinking in that when people are, for instance, denying COVID or you know that it's a Bill Gates microchip or or that you know Trump won the election or whatever it might be, and you ask them, well, how did you come to this conclusion? Uh, People will say, well, I did the research. And what does research mean in that context? Well, it means they were duly skeptical and they looked things up on the Internet, but they didn't also have those parts of critical thinking where it asks you to think about your sources. And so I think it's fantastic that there is so much information available on the web. I'm a big fan of YouTube. Like it's odd for someone to say that you don't hear that many people say that, but I'm subscribed to hundreds of YouTube channels because I love to learn about things and there isn't really anything you can't learn how to do on YouTube. Uh, like I, one of my favorite channels, and I have no plan on building a wood boat, but I watch this channel called acorn to Arabella on Saturday mornings. And it's just fascinating to learn about how to build a wood boat. Um, And so it's great that all that information is out there, but then the question for us as a society is: is that information helping us and how much of the information is useful and good and how much of the information is not and what are the relative ratios of that? And then that's the thing that I'm concerned about and I also don't think that say, well, we just need to be critical thinking. We have to be critical thinkers and we all have to do our own research is the solution. And so part of the challenge here is a problem of expertise. And that's why Wikipedia was an interesting project to me early on because people were challenging Wikipedia, right? My, my students even today will say things like, oh, our teachers in middle school and high school told us never, never to use Wikipedia. And so Wikipedia makes available all this really fascinating information, but people don't have very clear thoughts about what it means to be expertise and what is to have expertise and what is the basis of expertise on Wikipedia and It just goes to show how you can have good information, you can have decent community processes, but things can still become so misconstrued and confused. So for example, the reason I use Wikipedia as a capstone project in one of my classes is it allows me to show the students what do, at least on the English Wikipedia, what do the Wikipedians consider to be reputable knowledge that's worthwhile representing there? And they have principles like reputable source. You, if you take information, you have to have it come from a reputable source. And then they have very detailed nitty gritty question discussions about, well, what is a reputable source? Uh, and what is a notable source? And are we going to include, for, in, for instance, the New York Post or some other kind of tabloid newspapers or magazines? And those are really all very important discussions and conversations, but we haven't, um, And I don't know to the extent that we can teach every citizen of the world that level of nuanced thinking. So we are really struggling with who has the expertise to say certain things. And are we living in a completely propagandized social media environment? Um, And those are really big, difficult problems. And H.G. Wells, he never really wrestled with any of this. Again, he had that very naive assumption. And that's going back to that book project I had been thinking about, about naive tech, uh, that statements will be easy to arrive at. And then once you have the statements, people won't be able to argue because it'll be clear what the truth is. And that is not the case at all. And one of the YouTube channels I've been most fascinated with recently, they call it street epistemology. And the idea is people... And typically skeptically inclined, critically inclined people go out on the street and they'll have a desk with a couple of microphones and they'll ask someone to speak to them about something controversial. And instead of arguing with them about it, that this is right or wrong, what they want to do is they want to elicit how it is that people think about this. So one of the most prominent street epistemologists by the name of Anthony, uh, he had this nice presentation where he said, we have to move beyond... Asking what is true or what you believe towards how do you understand what is true and why do you understand what is true? And so that does give me a glimmer of hope in terms of figuring out and going beyond HG Wells's original naivete. Because right now we seem, at least in the United States context, to be living in a world where everyone is arguing about... You know, masks are useless, masks are useful. The vaccine is good, the vaccine is bad. Uh, Trump won the election, Trump didn't win the election. Um, And people are just knocking heads there. But if we can instead say, well, how, why do you believe what it is that you believe? What are the sources of your belief? Would that belief stand if I took the same reasoning and applied it to a different case or even your opponent's case? That Is intriguing me this year, this is one of my obsessions this year, last past couple of months at least, um, of maybe engaging with and teaching critical thinking in a positive, constructive way. Because that earlier version of you should look things up on the internet yourself, I don't think that has panned out well for us.
0: Oh, you touch upon such an important um, topic of people being able to be critical of statements and uh, being critical of the sources uh, as well as their reputability. But I'm, I'm just wondering uh, whether even HG Wells' idea to have this uh, centralized encyclopedia even better compared to what we have now in the sense that he brings out the consensus of the uh, of uh, people who have expertise and when we have uh, one expert shouting some outrageous claims, people tend to listen to that compared to what is the consensus in the field.
1: Yeah, and he did not give that much thought. He was very naive in terms of what he thought might happen. And it is only through, for instance, at Wikipedia, you know, two decades of discussions and arguments about, well, is it good enough to find an expert that says something Uh, even if it is contrary to the consensus for representation in Wikipedia. And through their policies of neutral point of view and no original research and reputable sources, I think they've, um, I call it an epistemic stance, right? Because it's about knowledge. They've come up with a good system for allowing us to describe the world. Because for instance, if you're going to look at the young earth creationist webpage, right? their earth is 6,000 years old. If you're going to look at the earth is flat, webpage. What Wikipedia does is it says, here is this belief. Here is the consensus. Well, here's the evidence for this belief. Here's the expert consensus about this. So it's definitely a very minority fringe point of view. Uh, Here's the history of this belief. Uh, And here's its manifestations in popular culture today. And that's very useful. And HG Wells was nowhere near Having thought about that again, his his point was his point of view was very naive. Thinking facts are easy, and once you have the facts, all the other stuff falls away, and you will be able to have this. I mean, he was really into a global socialist uh, government that would be able to basically tell us all how we should live. And in some ways, it's quite scary. And one of the things I note in the introduction to the book is that he wrote a book on uh, you know utopia. And he wrote a, wrote a book on world brain, and he had these notions of uh, w- uh, new world order. And to him, those were all very positive things. They have negative connotations. Now, I say we use Wells' words with Orwell's connotations. Uh, and I think we're right to be a little bit concerned about. But that was the perspective from which he was coming, that we'll be able to easily distill facts, that all the partisan rancor will fall away, and we will have this benevolent socialist World government that will take care of everything for us, and that's a bit unusual for contemporary readers today. But it's nonetheless interesting.
0: And now, thinking about the bigger picture, what would be implications of building upon these ideas for our wider society?
1: Well, I do think the effort of trying to understand one another, of trying to determine what the truth is, uh, is still critical. Uh, and Wikipedia kind of does that with respect to at least describing the consensus point of view from reputable sources in many cases, and not in all cases, it's vandalized and it has biases. And in some countries, um, some of the smaller Wikipedias can easily, easily be taken over by biased partisans. Uh, so I think those are all still really worthwhile efforts and ones that I'm committed to as a, as an educator, uh. But in terms of solving global problems, it's such a difficult, hard problem, uh, and I don't know if Wells has anything to say to us other than that. Be very careful of being very naive. And one of the interesting things, and this is where it kind of really, you know, kind of twists my heart, is one of the critiques that Orwell made of H.G. Uh, Wells is H.G. Wells was very cosmopolitan. He didn't want people to say, well, you know, the French are so much better than the English, so much better than the Germans, though he actually did think the British and the English language in particular was better than French and German. He wanted English to be the universal language, and he makes some arguments in some of the chapters in the world brain for that being the case. But he didn't think the people were necessarily or good or worse or better. And so he would often... uh, argue against that type of parochialism. And one of the things Orwell said is it might be a myth that the English are better than the Germans, right? We might be building ourselves up and patting ourselves on the back and, you know, keeping our stiff upper lips and all that sort of stuff. And it is parochial and it is partisan, but, it, but if we didn't have that belief and if we weren't fighting the Germans, there would be Nazi stormtroopers um, patrolling in London right now. Uh, so, in that conflict and argument between H.G. Wells and George Orwell, it, you know, I feel uh, ambivalent because, on one hand, we see H.G. Wells critiquing uh, irrationality. He he would often critique the prominence of. Uh, the history of kings and history in, in history books, and Christianity, and he thought all oh, those things were oversized. And he was a socialist. He wanted to teach uh, more contemporary, modern history and understandings of science. And I'm sympathetic to that. You know, let's do away with superstition to the extent that we can, and let's think about things reasonably and rationally. But I think Orwell rightfully notes that people's parochialism and partisanship. Are the things that allowed them to uh, struggle and suffer through the Blitz, and nonetheless, you know, continue on with World War II and fight defy- defeating the Nazis. So it's it's complicated, right? Human nature is complicated. Human society is complicated. Uh, but you know, to pull back, I think what we can learn from Wells about for today is we we really need to be careful about treating te- technology naively. And I think that is a lesson that we keep forgetting and we keep repeating, and I have some thoughts about why that is as well. Um, But maybe one day we'll we'll learn not to be so naive. And earlier you mentioned AI, and I think something similar was going on. It's like, oh, you can create an AI, and it will be able to identify things in people. Well, it turns out that if you train facial recognition on AI and you only use people of a certain demographic it's going to be really bad when it comes to identifying people of other demographics, or it's going to lump them all together because the training data set wasn't very big. So one of the ways that we can be uh, smarter about this, and I have a colleague in computer science, the Corey college of computer science at Northeastern who comes and gives a talk because he does uh, it's professor Christo Wilson. And he does this great work on auditing algorithms and trying to figure out their biases and how they uh, might be, uh, hurting people or taking advantage of people or exploiting people. Um, and they are now requiring their computer science students to give some thought to some of these issues. And I think that's a good turn because when I was a computer science student many years ago, while I was interested in ethics and 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 policy and history, that wasn't part of our curriculum then.
0: So what kind of cyber or should I say cypherpunk uh utopian world would you like to live in
1: oh see i don't even know if i want to be so i say i wouldn't characterize myself as a cypher or cyberpunk anymore uh one of my favorite movies is blade runner and i, I also like uh the new the new blade runner uh and i you know i back then you can read some of my old readings if you can find them on the web you know i was quite the libertarian and I still really have those impulses. I'm skeptical of large organizations, whether they're corporations or governments. Uh, governments have you know, killed tens of millions of their own citizens. Uh, so I think it's right to be skeptical of their intentions and what they mean to do and the focus on individual liberty and freedoms. Uh, but I also realize that framing can be used to then again exploit people Um, and so as like a very simple example i think we should be skeptical of government interventions and you know like a very shallow level like yes let's have smaller government than larger government but for instance conservatives and particularly republicans in the united states have taken advantage of that and basically in some ways hobbled the government They've made it impossible for the government to do a good job, and I don't go that far. So while I am still pro-classically liberal, uh, I'm not quite the libertarian that I used to be. While I used to really love the cyberpunk aesthetic, you know, I loved Blade Runner. That seemed like a really cool world to live in. Uh, That's not the world I'd want to live in anymore anymore. I mean, it it looks cool. It's kind of neat. You have all these gadgets. But nowadays, I really appreciate being able to take a nice hike in the woods next to a lake with the sun shining. (laughs) And that's not the aesthetic you see in Blade Runner. Um, So I don't know, both the aesthetic appeal of it and also some of the political social thinking around cypherpunk and cyberpunk. I've, I've changed in the past 20, 30 years, and I suppose that's not surprising.
0: And now how things are unfolding nowadays, let's hope that we're not headed to Mad Max kind of future.
1: Yeah, I really don't want to go there. I love that movie. I love that series of movies. And I, you know, but that's, that's not the world I want to live in.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on? And what will be your next project?
1: So I got dispirited by (laughs) these questions of technological naivete or worse. Uh, And I put some of those projects aside and uh, my last, so, you know, solely authored book because uh, i did have a i edited a collection of, of essays about some of these topics about wikipedia during wikipedia's 20th year anniversary last year and i was happy to help this this hg wells book along and, and frame it historically relative to wikipedia but my last book was about uh the quantified self and life hackers and that culture and how I'm also similarly ambivalent about that. Like I have a very systematizing mindset. I like experimentation. I do tend to be individualistic and rational. And I think those are all good things. But again, people can be very naive and utopic about where those things necessarily lead. So Hacking Life is the name of that book. And in some ways, that is a story about self-help for the new millennium. And how our original impressions of how all of this can be good, like it can be very good to be productive, right? We want to maximize our productivity at work, but how that then can lead us astray and lead us unsatisfied nonetheless. So like the chapters in that book, then how do people deal with that? Well, maybe they become digital nomads and minimalists, and they get rid of all the material stuff, and they try to live very minimally, but they nonetheless still feel unsatisfied. And then they realize, oh, what I need to do is hack my relationships. Maybe that doesn't. And so the chapters move from material hacking through to spirituality hacking. And in the end, I conclude that life hacking, like any tool, is a set of like blinkers that you would put on a horse. It allows you to focus on a future. It allows you to be very productive and sort of straight in your path towards your particular goals. But it also tends to block out the periphery and the people you might be trotting underfoot. So, again, my themes are technology and its related culture are very inspiring and exciting to me. But, you know, where can it go wrong? And so, once I put the naivete project aside, I, I decided I want to stick with the self-help realm. And I'm really interested in advice columns, and in particular, the manifestation of advice columns on the web today. So for example, there's that subreddit, am I the asshole? And there's another one called am I a Budhead. And there's relationship advice. So again, as someone who's interested in media and communication genres, I am just absolutely fascinated about how this popular genre of self-help, which is, you know, writing to someone for advice, how that has been democratized. And of course, there are still, we are in a golden age of proper advice columns where you write into Dear Somebody, right? Dear Abby or wherever it might be. Um, but we also have this groundswell of populist open source advice, So I'm thinking that might be a book project and something I've been working on in the past year is I thought, well, when I do this research, um, can I quote these people on Reddit? Because in my past work, for instance, if I cited a Wikipedian or if I cited a Lifehacker, if they were using their real name or if they were using their pseudonym, I quoted them as a bibliographic source. And they were in the bibliography. You could look at the URL and go look at the original source. But since people were talking about personal issues like their health or their relationships, drug use, sexuality, and even if they're using pseudonyms, I thought, I need to give this a little bit more thought. So I've been working on a couple of papers. Uh, One, when researchers use quotes from Reddit, for example, and they don't try to anonymize it or disguise it in any way. Uh, How hard is it to actually find those sources and potentially expose or embarrass those people? And even when people actually do disguise their sources, they use a pseudonym or they change the text of the quotation a little bit, how many of those are effective? So in my one paper, I looked at uh, over a dozen papers that said they tried to protect the identity of their sources on Reddit And I tried to figure out how well they did a job. And my findings were they did a really poor job. They did a really bad job. So, uh, I've also been interested in, well, what would it mean to do a good job if you wanted to disguise your sources? and quoting and doing research on Reddit or online communities? What does it take for that to actually work well? So I have a series of papers. They're not all published, but I have drafts up. So I've been working on that in terms of articles and research, and I've also been giving thought to this bigger question of, of, life, of, of life advice, self-help advice columns, and the open sourcing of advice.
0: These sound super interesting projects.
1: Oh, thank you. I think so.
0: So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Uh, you can go to regal.org, R-E-A-G-L-E dot O-R-G. That's my personal website. I'm also on Twitter at J.M. Regal. It's Joseph Michael Regal, and Regal is like R with an eagle.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today uh, for this thought-provoking discussion.
1: Thank you for speaking with me.